All right, let's go ahead and share the screen real quickly and get this thing started. Okay, so thanks everybody for this opportunity to talk about a topic that for most of you guys who may or may not know me already, this is one that's near and dear to my heart. I've been in the field of now nephrology for more than two decades going on. And this is a topic that unfortunately still two decades later doesn't get the kind of attention that we keep hoping would be getting. So let me dive in a little bit into the information. I want to give you guys a lots and lots of opportunity to ask me any questions and anything that may be on your mind. For those of you guys who know me, I love quotes. This is my favorite quote. I know all of you guys love it. My only ask is this is mine. Get your own. I'm totally kidding. Just a joke. So let's talk a little bit about something that is a lot more serious of a topic, which is kidney disease. The reason we want to talk about kidney disease is we talk so much, in my opinion, about things like heart disease, cancer, all sorts of other things, because when you have those diseases, you can clearly notice the symptoms. You know you have chest pain going on. You know that there's heart failure because there's fluid building up in the legs or it's building up inside the lungs. There's shortness of breath going on. But what makes kidney disease so devastating is that when you have it, there is usually not only no symptoms early on, but oftentimes even in the later stages, you'll find that people walk in and they don't have symptoms going on. In fact, when it comes to prevalence, the prevalence of kidney disease is anywhere between one in six or one in seven going on, depending on the population. But here's the real kicker. 90% of the people who have kidney disease don't know they have kidney disease going on. And so when we start to think about the fact that there are so many folks out there who have kidney disease and they don't even know it, this becomes incredibly important to understand one, how do you even know if you have kidney disease? Two, what should you do to try to prevent it? But when you talk about kidney disease, there's actually three main causes. And the third one, of course, is related to these two, which is really diabetes and high blood pressure. So diabetes and high blood pressure are your main causes. And the third one is obesity. Now, when we talk about dialysis and the risk of kidneys getting worse, not all ethnic groups are the same. In fact, in terms of the overall risk, Caucasians have the lowest risk, but the highest risk is found in African-Americans where the risk is about four times higher. Native Americans have a higher risk, Asians have a higher risk, Hispanics have a higher risk. But the reason this matters so much is because in African-Americans, the number one cause for leading to dialysis happens to be high blood pressure that goes untreated. Now, what matters to me so much is trying to raise attention about this issue of kidney disease, because when we go back and talk about this, what we find is each year, kidney disease ends up killing more people than breast or prostate cancer. And as a result of that, you would think that there would be so much more attention, but still, it is one of those things that is almost looked upon as a black box. And yet there are so much that we can do in terms of lifestyle and even in terms of combination of lifestyle with some of our newer treatments that can make a substantial impact on where you are right now. So today's talk is not so much on the medication side, but it's going to focus on the lifestyle side, really, in terms of what is the evidence-based message that you want to take away from this talk in terms of vital nutrients. Now, this is going to sound all complicated, 
but it's not. As we get into each one of these, you're gonna find it's actually quite simple to be able to understand this concept. So we're gonna talk about salt, potassium, calcium, phosphorus, protein, fats, fiber, sugar, but we're gonna do this in the sense that we're gonna come at it from the angle of how does your diet determine your future? And so with that, let's start with the first one. When we start with sodium, what we know about national guidelines around sodium is, is there are all sorts of different national guidelines coming out. There are different bodies that sort of say, this is what you ought to do if you have chronic kidney disease going on. And some will say aim for less than 2.4 grams per day of sodium. Some will say less than two grams per day. Generally speaking, when you're in that range of less than two grams, you're in a good place going on. Majority of sodium that people consume comes from not that salt shaker that's on your table, but it really comes from all those eating out, has insane amounts of salt. One meal eating out at a restaurant can easily give you over a gram to two grams, easily. So a lot of the food comes in anything that's processed, anything that's packaged, that's where the sodium is not your salt shaker. So with that, what we find is, is when we talk about high blood pressure, diabetes being the biggest culprits with high blood pressure, salt is a big deal. And what we know is if you start to restrict somebody's salt, just the act of restricting somebody's salt can have an equivalent effect on blood pressure that's equivalent to about one blood pressure medication. So imagine a typical blood pressure medication gives you about 10 point improvement. So one blood pressure medication, let's say your blood pressure is 140. Your doctor is saying, let's get it down to 130 or less. If that's the case, one agent is sufficient. It will bring it down roughly around 10 points. But if you look at what lifestyle can do, just reducing the sodium component alone can bring it down almost 10 points going on. Not only does that happen, but if you go ahead and go on a low sodium diet, in addition to that, you'll also get a dramatic reduction in protein in the urine. Why do we care about protein in the urine? Because proteinuria or protein in the urine is the biggest risk factor and is the single best way to know how quickly you are going to progress to dialysis. So if you said, you know, what are my risks for going on to dialysis in the future? How can I make sure of all of this stuff going on? Look at the protein in the spilling. The more protein you spill, the faster you're going to progress to dialysis. All right. The other stuff that's there is, is even though when you start to restrict things like sodium, you may not see a difference in other markers going on. What you know is that if you can reduce the protein in the urine, if you can reduce the blood pressure, you will absolutely lower the risk of people progressing to dialysis. And because of that, it makes all the difference in the world to focus on trying to reduce your salt intake as a primary modality for kidney protection. Now, this is an older study. This came out in 2011. But the reason I bring it here is because when people talk about medications, they often forget medications alone are okay. Medications, when you combine them with lifestyle, get supercharged. What do I mean? Well, in this particular study where they use patients either with an ACE inhibitor or combining ACE inhibitors with a low sodium diet. Look at what a dramatic result is. So when they did an ACE inhibitor with a regular sodium diet going on, what they found was that people were spilling protein in the urine. It got better, 
But what they found was as soon as they added a low sodium diet, they almost doubled the effects of the medication going on. So imagine instead of trying to say, doc, my protein is not controlled. The doctor says, now you need another medication. What if we're able to reduce your pill burden? And simply by adding lifestyle, we can go ahead and give you almost 100% improvement over where you're at. That's pretty amazing. Now, potassium is one of those things that gets such a bad rap. And, you know, it's, it's really poorly understood what potassium is, because what you want to understand about potassium and why it's so misunderstood is because high potassium will kill you and low potassium will kill you. Yet, Potassium is one of the most critical things in our body to make sure that we have in the ideal amounts. And in our kidney patients, the worse your kidney disease is, the harder it is for your kidneys to get rid of potassium. So oftentimes as people's kidney disease gets worse, the blanket recommendation is, is we need to cut down their potassium. Now, our job as physicians, as healthcare providers, as dietitians, is to make sure we individualize for the patient. And what that means, let's dive into it a little bit so I can explain it. But first, once again, guidelines. So what do the guidelines mean? So look at Kadoki for the middle uh, box for a second, because this is probably the best way of understanding why this is so crucial to get an idea of potassium is when you have a tiny bit of kidney disease, having higher concentrations of potassium in your diet are actually healthier for you. And you want to get your potassium not through a supplement, but by eating lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, because they will give you the best potassium, the best absorption, and all of the pleiotropic benefits that you're looking for anyways. But what you want to notice is in early kidney disease, the recommendation is greater than four grams per day. In later kidney disease, the recommendation is to drop that down almost by 50% going on. And why? Because your clearance goes down. But let's dive a little bit deeper into it. When we start to look at potassium and what happens if people take potassium foods and blood pressure, what's really fascinating is, is we talked about cutting salt and how cutting salt is equivalent to one blood pressure medication. But take a look here. Adding potassium through foods is equivalent to another half a pill right there in terms of blood pressure support. So how cool is it and how fascinating is it that if you just want to improve your blood pressure health, you can lower your salt and you can start to add fruits and vegetables and what happens to your blood pressure? It goes down and it does so so well that you may not need the same number of pills or you may not need any pills for that matter going on. So very fascinating to see how we can change these things going on. Even when we talk about things like chronic kidney disease incidence, which means what is the likelihood of you developing chronic kidney disease? And by the way, I love coffee. <laughs> coffee is not part of this talk, but coffee and kidney disease is a fascinating topic where the, the incidence of kidney disease is actually lower the more coffee you drink. And part of that has to do with the antioxidant benefits, but I'm a big coffee fan. <clears throat> so with that, let's go into potassium intake and CKD. So what we find is, is as we start to look at folks who take the lowest amount of potassium intake versus the highest, the lowest is more linked to 
getting chronic kidney disease versus the more you end up taking in potassium, the lower your risk of developing chronic kidney disease. The take-home message here is very simple is, if you want to get more potassium, stick to whole foods, fruits and vegetables are excellent. Of course, same thing with things like nuts going on, avocados, et cetera, going on. Those are excellent sources. And you want to be able to use those things to be able to change how you eat. Now, calcium is something that people are absolutely obsessed with. And what is tricky about calcium is, is there's so much marketing and hype around making sure that folks are getting enough calcium. But taking in calcium supplementation doesn't mean your bones are just going to uptake it. The only way your bones are going to want to take up calcium is if there's a need. And what I mean by that is, is if you do any kind of resistance training, for example, you're stressing the bones. When you stress the bones, they want to get stronger. When you stress a muscle, the response of the muscle is to get stronger. So if you want to get bigger muscles, you don't get bigger muscles by sitting there and just trying to focus on taking creatine all day. You focus on trying to lift weights. And as you lift weights, what ends up happening is this you're causing micro tears, you're stimulating the muscle, the muscle repairs itself as it does, it does it stronger. Same thing with bones going on. So there's this idea that folks forget about exercise, but focus way too much on the idea of trying to supplement. Now, when it comes to chronic kidney disease, there's a lot of controversy on what is the optimal amount of calcium that ought to go in. But it's a fascinating thing because when we start to look at calcium balance in chronic kidney disease actually becomes quite concerning. This is an older study, but this is a really well-designed study, very small study. But the reason it was so interesting was in this particular study, what they wanted to see was what was the difference between giving somebody 800 milligrams versus giving somebody two grams of a calcium containing diet. In other words, where does the calcium go in their body if you essentially give them the quote unquote recommended two grams going on? So when they gave them 800 milligrams of calcium intake, what they found was that overall, the balance was negative to neutral. What that means is what went in could be equivalent to what came out of the body in the form of urine and stool. So you could measure the input versus the output, and it was almost the same or slightly more for the output going on. Okay, so that's fine. So at 800, that's okay. Let's go to 2000 or more. What happens with 2000 or more? Well, with 2000 or more, what they found was that they were starting to be what we call a positive calcium balance. How do they know? Because what they saw was that there wasn't an increase in the calcium in the blood. So serum calcium didn't go up. Well, that's fine. Maybe it went out in the stool. They checked the stool. It didn't go out in the stool. Okay, so maybe it went out in the urine. They checked the urine. It didn't go out in the urine. So now it's not in the urine. It's not in the stool. And the blood level of calcium hasn't risen. So the question is, is, where did this calcium go? And the answer is, it ends up in tissues. And as a result of that, when you look at our dialysis patients, calcium and phosphorus, they precipitate together and they turn into essentially this really hard type structure that ends up forming inside your blood vessels. And when folks who are on dialysis, for example, they have an x-ray, you will see the calcifications, they light up on the x-ray. It's almost like looking at a Christmas tree. This is how substantial it is. 
And that's actually a really high risk factor for mortality. So high amounts of calcium, especially in patients with increasing kidney disease, they don't actually have anywhere to go and they end up depositing inside tissues. So we wanna be careful about this idea of calcium supplementation versus getting our bones to wanna take up the calcium that's coming into our bodies. With phosphorus, what becomes interesting about phosphorus is this, Phosphorus is a very unique thing. First, if you don't have phosphorus, you die. If you have too much phosphorus, you also die. But it's not like potassium where the effects are immediate. With phosphorus, low phosphorus can have very immediate effects, but high phosphorus does damage over months to years going on. So what happens there? When you start to talk about phosphorus, what we know is, as your serum phosphorus starts to increase, what happens overall is your risk of death starts to rise. And phosphorus is an additive found in just about every single processed food that's present there. So what we end up seeing is, is all sorts of processed foods have phosphorus and not all different types of phosphorus are the same. And we're gonna talk about each type in a second. But what you wanna understand about phosphorus is the more phosphorus you get, the more it starts to affect all sorts of things such as bone health going on. Specifically, there's a breakdown of bones going on. Your parathyroid glands start to get stimulated, meaning they can start to get larger going on. There's all these secondary effects that are happening throughout the body going on, and not to mention the calcifications that start along with the calcium in the body. But phosphorus comes in a variety of different types. There's what we call inorganic and what we call organic. And the reason you want to know about this is because inorganic has essentially 100% absorption. What goes in the body, all of it gets absorbed and all of it does all the bad things we talked about. What are those types? You have processed foods, you got all those pre-cooked meals, cheeses, and of course, sodas. Those are your biggest culprits when it comes to understanding the risk of inorganic phosphorus. But organic phosphorus, the advantage that you start to deal with is the fact that you're going to have less than 60% absorption. So whenever you have the option, you always want to prefer organic phosphate over inorganic phosphate simply because there's less absorption. And what are the types of organic phosphate? Well, there's two types, animal and plant-based sources. So what you want to know about both of these types is with animal that's where you have about 40 to 60% absorption. And when you start to look at plant-based though, it's only 10 to 30% absorption. So if you've been listening to the lecture so far, you've heard about sodium, you heard about potassium, you heard about calcium. Now you're hearing about phosphorus. What you're starting to see is a pattern, a dietary pattern that's already telling you from an evidence-based perspective, from hundreds of studies that's starting to show you that as we shift towards a predominant whole food plant-based diet, what you're going to tend to find is that is the ideal diet from a kidney health perspective going on. And that's why we tend to get so excited about this idea. So the other part of this is something known as the phosphorus to protein ratio. So the phosphorus to protein ratio is this idea that, for example, if you're somebody on dialysis, remember in chronic kidney disease, we talk about 
low protein diets. But when we start to get to things like dialysis patients, we actually want more protein because of the fact that in dialysis, it's a catabolic state. They are breaking down their protein. And we know that lower protein is linked to mortality. But we also know that in dialysis patients, the higher the phosphorus, the higher the mortality. So the ideal diet for a person would be is something that has low phosphorus, high protein in somebody who has advanced CK, I'm sorry, who has dialysis going on. So for example, let's compare cheese versus lentils. So if you were to compare cheese versus lentils, what you would find is phosphorus to protein on both of them, the ratio is 20. So from that perspective, you would say, okay, well, you know what? Both of these are the same, so I can pick either one. But remember, when you look at absorption, you want the least absorption of phosphorus, which is plant-based. So lentils would be a much better option because lentils would have a substantially lower absorption of phosphorus than cheese would. As a result of it, what you're looking at is a much better option. So once again, even if you're on dialysis, what we're talking about is looking more at plant-based options, specifically because of the fact that you're going to have better outcomes from all of the things we've talked about. So then let's get into the stuff that's really controversial. And for anybody who's asking questions, don't worry, we will address all of your questions at the end. I'm unable to see them because I don't have that window open. So I will open the chat window as soon as this talk is done. So my apologies if I haven't answered your questions just yet. So with protein, the guidelines are pretty interesting. Essentially, what you want to remember is in, in patients who have chronic kidney disease, generally speaking, we're talking about 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram per day of protein going on. We recommend more plant-based proteins going on because of the fact that they are less acidic. And we'll talk about that in a second. But we have lots of studies that have shown that when you start to get into more of a lower protein type diet, what you will find is the overall mortality goes down. There's a number of thought process to that. Number one is the fact that as you start to increase protein, it's more acidic. The more acid load you put in your body, the faster your kidneys are going to die and the more likely you have overall mortality. In fact, when we look at our kidney transplant patients, there are some really elegant studies that show that giving patients sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda and keeping their blood bicarbonate levels, which is kind of like the base of an acid base part, keeping their alkaline levels higher reduces the overall mortality. But here's the kicker. You can do exactly the same thing by eating alkaline type foods. What are they? Plants. That's all it is. So the more you shift from the standard American diet, the more you shift from more meat type diet to more plant type diet, the better off you're going to find as a health perspective going on. Now, in this particular study, the number needed to treat was two to 56. In our clinical population, we see so many patients that what we feel is using lower protein diets is actually part of our strategy and using protein sources that are specifically plant-based, we find that the more animal-based sources they eat, the more protein they spill versus the more plant-based sources they eat, the less protein they spill. Going back to that same question we talked about before, which was protein in the urine 
is one of the best predictors for how fast your kidneys are going to decline. So if you want to slow down the rate of decline of your kidney disease, you want to control the protein in the urine. Diet is a very important portion of that. Blood pressure, diabetes, weight, of course. And on top of that, we have really excellent medications that can help to augment everything we're doing. So the combination of things now that we have in nephrology that we didn't have available just 10 years ago is amazing. So there's so much hope now than ever before. <clears throat> so now with red meat, there's all sorts of data when it comes to heart disease and so forth going on. But when it comes to kidney disease, we don't talk about it as much. And it's the same idea. The more red meat consumption there is, the more there's risk for chronic kidney disease. Not only that, the worst offenders are always gonna be processed meat. So processed meat is the worst offender. Then of course, you're gonna dealing with red meat going on. Now, same thing when it comes to end-stage renal disease. When it comes to end-stage renal disease, the more red meat consumption, the more the risk. Oftentimes you'll see that a lot of patients will be told by their clinics and dietitians, you need to eat more protein. You'll, it's not uncommon that, you know, when I go around in a dialysis unit, I'll see a patient have, you know, a fast food meal that they're trying to eat and thinking they're doing themselves good because they have protein, quote unquote, in the form of a Big Mac going on. And that couldn't be anything further from the truth. So helping patients to make those better decisions makes all the difference going on. Same exact thing when it comes to red meat is red meat, total protein makes a difference. But what we find is if you start to substitute red meat with other things, what could be other things? Tofu. What you'll find is you actually lower the risk substantially of progressing to end-stage renal disease going on. So this is why it matters so much. And when it comes in protein types, poultry, fish, eggs, and dairy are neutral. The data does not support that they harm or help as far as making the kidneys get worse faster. The issue with dairy, of course, there's concerns about phosphorus, there's concerns about IGF-1, there's other things such as new 5GC and so forth, topics for another conversation. Okay. This was a very interesting study in 2016, which really sort of made everybody understand how powerful this idea of a low or a very low protein diet was where they were using keto analogs. And the whole idea was using keto analogs was when you did a very low protein diet, you would be missing out on your essential amino acids, and that would lead to all sorts of medical issues. So they wanted to make sure that folks still had their complete essential amino acids and got a very low protein diet. So they would just give them these keto analogs. Why keto analogs? Because then they would be able to get through the stomach all the way to the intestines and get absorbed. That's the whole point of it. And what they were looking for was that what would happen if they put on a very low protein diet, meaning only about 0.3 grams per kilogram per day. And so what they found was that the end point, which was either ending up on dialysis or basically losing 50% of your kidney function, only 13% of the people in the keto analog arm reach that endpoint versus 42% of the people in the low protein diet reach that endpoint. And the reason this matters is because of the fact that our goal in life is 
we have a very hard time trying to stop kidney disease. Most of the time, we can't stop it. There's a lot of folks out there who talk about reversing kidney disease, but the problem is oftentimes what they're saying is they're preying on people who don't fully understand science. And so when you look at a creatinine and I make a creatinine number better, that does not mean I made your kidneys better. So this is unfortunately not the correct way to be able to assess it. When I make your kidneys better is where I can show you, for example, there is an actual physiological thing that changed your protein in the urine. If you were spilling four or 5,000 milligrams, I have gone ahead and brought it down to the normal range of less than 300. So that's where I would tell you that not only have I decreased your rate of decline of kidney disease, I have stopped the disease process. That's where you can show it. But creatinine is a terrible marker because creatinine isn't even produced in the kidneys. Creatinine is a waste product of the muscles. And we use it as an indirect way of basically measuring kidney function. So more to come on that when we get into the Q&A portion going on. But back to this idea was what the study showed was that you didn't have to treat that many patients, but putting people on a very low protein diet worked. Now, it's really hard to do a 0.3 gram per kilogram per day. We use 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram per day, but we prefer a predominant plant-based diet. We tend to recommend tofu as the best type of protein source going on. And that's where we see that our patients do great. And how do we know? Because one of the things we look for is these things called indoxyl sulfate or P-cresyl sulfate. These are uremic toxins. Now, where do these uremic toxins get produced? They get produced by your gut bacteria. So the gut bacteria is the source for all of these toxins. And what ends up happening there is the more you are predominantly a meat eater, the more you have these inflammatory type bacteria that are making these toxins going on. And all of these toxins, what they end up doing is they damage your gut microbiome, they create a leaky gut, that allows more toxins to go through the gut going on, and then they end up right to the kidneys. So as they get to the kidneys, they damage the tubules, they damage the glomerulus going on. Bottom line is they're damaging the kidneys. But what we find is, is that if you look at vegetarians or vegans, now we're not talking vegans who are eating plant-based burgers. We're talking whole food plant-based folks going on, meaning they're eating lots of fruits and vegetables. What we find is they have far less uremic toxins. In fact, when you look at places like Japan, where just a few decades ago, they didn't have enough dialysis machines, so they would ration, what they would do is put people on a very low protein diet. And of course, they weren't eating a lot of meat. So you would find that these people could last years without dialysis, simply because of the fact that their protein intake was very low. They were predominantly vegetarians. Of course, they had to modify their diets to make sure that their potassium levels were being controlled. But overall, they could actually do really well. So vegetarians have less uremic toxins. The two that we measure is indoxyl sulfate and precresyl sulfate, but there's lots more ones that are out there. So we talked a little bit about soy protein. And what we said about soy was that soy tends to be awesome. We love soy. Tofu is great. And what we find is, is when you start to look at data on using 
tofu versus using animal type protein, you will find with tofu, there's less protein in the urine. So even when I see diabetics who are spilling protein in the urine, the first thing I always recommend to them is switch to tofu. And then same thing, because you're using plants, you're going to find that the serum phosphorus is going to be lower because once again, the absorption is dramatically lower when you compare plant-based phosphorus to animal-based phosphorus to inorganic phosphorus. All right. With fats, fats tends to be a hot topic. There are folks who say absolutely no fats whatsoever going on. There are folks who talk about the fact that saturated fat is not bad for you. We're just going to focus on fats in regards to kidney disease. And what we find is that even though there's no direct link between saturated fat and kidney disease, what we know is correlation studies show that higher intakes of saturated fat is linked to higher amounts of albuminuria. Whether that's an inflammatory cascade or not, I couldn't tell you, but most likely there's probably some truth to that going on. On the flip side to saturated fats, we don't talk enough about fiber. In fact, what we know is fiber is so important. Now, for those of people who are typical Americans and only get about 10 grams, which is the average for an American, 10 grams of fiber a day, you want to go up slowly because otherwise you'll create a bowel obstruction. But for most people, we don't come even near the amount of fiber you should be eating. How much fiber? It should be about 40 grams. And for those people who are obsessed about our paleo ancestors, they were eating close to 100 grams of fiber a day. So fiber, the beauty of it is, it's one of the most effective ways to lower the risk of kidney disease. Eat more fiber. How do you get more fiber? fruits and vegetables, fruits and vegetables, and fruits and vegetables. In fact, it doesn't take much. Once again, typical American only getting about 10 grams. If you increase just five grams going on, just five, which is very little in terms of the overall burden, you can start to make a dent in the incidence of chronic kidney disease across the country going on. So what we know about fiber is, is because fiber has such a dramatic impact, Every single American, in fact, every single individual in the world should really focus on trying to eat more fiber. The more you eat, the better you're going to do. Now, people talk about sugar all the time, but when it comes to chronic kidney disease, what we know is the more sugar you eat or drink, the more likely you are to have protein in the urine. Protein in the urine, once again, is the biggest predictor of how fast you are going to progress to dialysis going on. And when it comes to chronic kidney disease, the more sugar you take, the more your incidence of developing chronic kidney disease goes. And that number continues to rise the more you end up drinking. So a lot of people I know think that just because sugar is bad, they think switching to non-nutritive sweetener, I use the term artificial sweetened, but the term really should be non-nutritive sweeteners because Splenda is included in this. So Stevia, Splenda, Aspartame, NutraSweet, Xylitol, Erythritol, all of these guys, the challenge you have is several fold. With artificial sweeteners, what you end up finding is that the risk of impacting your kidney function, meaning a drop in your kidney function, is substantial the more non-nutritive sweeteners you have. But non-nutritive sweeteners do so much damage to your body in a number of ways. They mess up your gut microbiome. They create the inflammatory gut microbiome, which then leads to what? 
You can have a leaky gut. You can start to create more insulin resistance. You can have more sugar that's floating around your bloodstream because you now have insulin resistance going on. You also have more insulin, which by the way, takes any excess calories you have, stores them as fat going on. And on top of all of this stuff, even things like stevia, which is anywhere between 200 to 400 times sweeter than sugar, when you take it, it completely transforms how sweet a regular strawberry tastes. So once you do that, you're going to find the tasting regular whole foods just don't taste the same anymore. This is why for us, one of the things that we recommend is getting over sugar does not mean going from something that's little bad to something that's terrible. In other words, trying to cut your cocaine habit doesn't mean you should switch to heroin once a week because, hey, I'm not using cocaine anymore. So it's really important to be careful and mindful about the changes we look at making. So this is why all of these things, when we start to think about diet sodas, are very, very tricky, not just because the colored sodas like the darker colored have high contents of phosphorus, but also because of the fact that the artificial sweetened stuff matters. Now, when it comes to diet, we've been talking a lot about taking all this information and starting to put it together. And what we have basically come with the conclusion is, is that my message to all of you is if you switch to plant-based diets, you're going to do better. So that's where all the studies on kidney disease support. But here's where it's really important. There is so much confusion on what a plant-based diet is these days that I have to specify a whole food plant-based diet because a healthy plant-based diet is good, but an unhealthy plant-based diet is not just less good, it's actually terrible. And what we're finding is more and more people who are quote unquote going vegan unfortunately, are also becoming diabetics in the process, not because they're doing the right stuff for the environment and so forth, but because what they're picking is foods that are highly processed, even though they're non-animal based, they're incredibly highly processed foods. And that's the challenge we're faced with. So keep that in mind as you start to see these packages, because look, you know, a lot of companies understand that there's a trend towards plant-based and they're capitalizing on that. And that's why we have to make sure that we're educated. And especially for our kids, it's even more important for us to get a little bit better at being able to read the labels going on. So once again, there is so much misinformation about kidney disease. And if we can start to shift people towards eating more whole foods, to sleeping more, to exercising more, to creating healthy relationships and practicing kindness and gratitude and following whole foods, you can go ahead and change. So the bottom line here is very simple is what we're asking folks to do is to eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I love this line by Michael Pollan. As you know, this has stood the test of time. And this is something that I highly recommend you guys think about as you're going with that. So with that, I want to stop right there. And I want to make sure now to take the opportunity to address all of your questions that you guys might have, because the value in all of this work was really about taking the opportunity to answer any and all questions you guys have. So this is your chance of whatever is on your mind, anything related to kidney disease or not, now is your time to go ahead and ask. All right. Hold on one second. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Hashmi, for that presentation. Amazing. Um, so 
ready up to open up the Q&A session. So first, we want to explain to everyone how that, how that works. We normally don't take questions directly from the chat. Instead, we ask everyone to virtually raise their hand. If you're not sure how to do this, look at the bottom of your Zoom window. You'll see a reactions tab. Hit on that, and then you'll see a raise hand function. You click on that, and that, that will populate your, your hand on our participants window. Um, we take questions in order, in order in which we receive them. And when it's your turn, we'll unmute you and prompt you to ask your question. So we ask that everyone keep their questions brief and on topic. And in order to give everyone a chance to get their question answered, we won't be taking follow-up questions. So let's go ahead and get started. I do see a lot of questions now. Okay, first person we have is Rita. Rita, where are you from and what is your question? I am Rita Batija from Long Island, New York, and a very, very nice presentation, uh, Dr. Hasimi. Uh, the two quick question, there is a fermented high protein soy uh, tofu. Is that okay to have along with the regular soya bean or it should be the organic soya bean because it's very difficult to get ready to eat you know, organic soya bean. So on that, and the second question is that you mentioned about the sugar. So how about little sugar and the monk fruit and mannitol, which is a sugar alcohol, mm -hmm. would that be accepted? Thank you very much. That's my two quick questions. Great question. So the first question was regarding uh, fermented. So remember when, when we start to talk about fermented foods, the, the big thing that I would always point out is just be very careful about fermented foods in terms of the sodium content. So overall, big picture, looking at kidney disease, one of the biggest things we can do is cut back on the sodium. So fermented foods are awesome. If you're able to do that, that's great. There's some really fascinating data on fermented foods that I've talked about in the past, but definitely be very mindful of that in terms of the salt content. Now, in terms of your second question, as far as sort of sugar, alcohols, mannitol, et cetera, going on, you know, the, the challenge that we have is really what ends up happening to your gut microbiome. And there are so many specific changes. So we, we've focused so much on brain health, but what we're finding is, is your gut is also a brain, except it's like those, um, those movies on TV where like there's that big villain with a gigantic brain. Well, your gut is like that big villain with a gigantic brain, except you can change it so that all those bacteria, they work in synchrony and they work towards your favor. And this is where, you know, it's not to knock on the idea that you can't have stuff that you want once in a while, but we have become so addicted to the idea of sugar alcohols or non-nutritive sweeteners that this idea of having our natural taste buds. And where we get into trouble is, is when folks come to me and I ask them to go off of things like stevia, go off of monk fruit, and just be able to go back to food. And what I tell them is, we have some really well-designed studies that show within seven to 10 days, the taste buds on your tongue and your mouth actually change and they go back to where strawberries will actually start to taste sweeter again. So my, my recommendation is to try to focus on foods as close to their natural form as you can, number one. Number two is at the end of the day, it's not that stevia monk fruit are gonna be terrible for you. When used in moderation, they're great and nobody's perfect. I am absolutely furthest from perfect as you can get. But my advice is, is progress over perfection. And if you do that, you're going to do great. Life is way too short to spend trying to be perfect. Thank you, doctor. Next, we have David. David, where are you from and what is your question? Hi, 
Thank you so much for taking my question. Uh, I'm from the Washington, D.C. area. And as far as monk fruit and stevia, I noticed it's in many, many supplements. And so I just wanted to make that as a comment. Comment. It's very hard to avoid because of that. But my main concern and question relates to kidney stones as far as prevention and treatment. Um, you said in a previous um, presentation, the best way is to drink a lot of liquid, uh, water or whatever. I heard also it, it's helpful to drink or take lemon juice. I don't know how you feel about that. As for treating it, I had a friend who had kidney stones and he used sound waves and that seemed to be effective. I don't know if that can be used in most cases. I guess it depends on the individual. And then finally, one of the other presenters is an herbalist. And I noticed on her website, she claims that this herb called Chanca Piedra, which is spelled C-H-A-N-C-A, C-H-A-N-C-A, second word is Piedra, P-I-E-D-R-A, helps to break up kidney and gallstones. I don't know if you have any thoughts or experience with that, but my main concerns and questions is, preventing kidney stones, how do you treat kidney stones, how do you diagnose kidney stones, and if this herb, if you've heard of it, and if you think it's helpful. Yeah, so thank you so much for the question. So in, in regards to kidney stones, first, there's many types of kidney stones. There are kidney stones that are present in more of an acidic type environment, then there are kidney stones that are present in more of an alkaline type environment. And the reason we want to know is if it's present in more of an acidic type of environment, we're going to treat those differences. We're going to be wanting to make the acidic environment less acidic. So in those cases, things like citrate would matter a lot. But if it's more of an alkaline type stone, for example, a calcium phosphate stone, that's going to be different because of the fact that it's more of an alkaline type environment and we need to treat differently. So let's go back to the basics. The basics is if you have a stone, how the heck does a stone form? A stone is nothing more than debris. Just little, imagine like you're, you're looking at a pond and you see, you know, you're standing on the side and there's some sand, those little tiny pieces of sand, they start to stick together, they harden, and now you have a stone. That's it. That's all it is. So if you have a stream, not a pond, a stream that's moving, it's very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult for those little tiny pieces of sand to find a way to stick together and stay. Most of the time, even if they get you know, a few of them sticking together, the stream keeps moving and they fall out. So not only do they have to stick together, they have to get stuck inside the stream. So the reason we recommend things like two to three liters of water, and we're asking for making at least two liters of urine a day, is because of the fact that by making that stream happen, you're going to prevent particles from sticking together. And by preventing particles from sticking together, you reduce the chances for forming stones. So every single type of stones, no matter what it is, drinking water is going to help. Then in terms of your second part, which was really around citrate, citrate is excellent because the majority of stones are in an acidic environment. That's why if you have a stone, your nephrologist will always tell you is catch the stone, catch the stone. We want to analyze the stone. We want to know what the heck kind of stone it is. Because if we can figure out what type of stone it is, we can go ahead and treat it. We also know if we don't figure out what type of stone, we'll treat it like one of the common stone that's found in 80% of the people, which is more acidic. So that's why we will give people citrate, citrate in the form of a supplement, either liquid or pills, or we'll tell you lemons and limes going on. 
And most of the time we say lemons and limes, and even sometimes, you know, there's some data that says oranges are fine. Other data that if you have um, declining kidney health, oranges may not be as good because vitamin C can convert into oxalate. So if you're predisposed to calcium oxalate stones, you may want to avoid oranges. But generally speaking, oranges, lemons and limes, I tell all my patients just lemons and limes in general. So lemons and limes are the ways to go in terms of lowering your risk for kidney stones. In terms of the Chanka Piedra question, you know, this has come up at least in my conversations in the past. The way that I practice medicine is I look for not one study, but I look for replication of studies as randomized clinical trials, because I need to make sure one is not the person who's you know, benefiting off the drug, that they can show me that. So as soon as I have data on something, and if I know that the data is there to support it works, then that's something I want to tell my patients. It's the same thing that I want to go home and tell my kids or tell my wife or tell my own family members. Whatever I say, my first objective is, is to do no harm. And I want to be able to have some kind of information to back it. You had brought up the idea of sound waves. So there's shockwave lithotripsy. There's all sorts of other things. There's lasers that they can use. Your urologists are always coming up. Sometimes they used to even have to open up and do an incision to go in and take the kidney stones out. There's all sorts of ways, but none of those ways are, are good in the sense because you are doing a traumatic way of doing it. Those are things that we reserve when the nephrologist can't be helpful. And then in terms of knowing if you have kidney stones, first, if you have a kidney stones, kidney stones are like little tiny sharp blades. And so when they move around, they cut everything they touch and they cause the most intense pain. In fact, my female patients will tell me that have kidney stones, that that's the only thing that gets into comparison to childbirth. That's how severe kidney stone pain can be. So when people complain of pain in their kidneys and it's this really sharp pain, kidneys don't hurt by definition. They only hurt for a couple of reasons because you have an infection or you have a stone going on. So just keep that in mind as you're thinking about it. So as far as the bottom line on stone goes, water is incredibly effective. Citrate, which means more alkaline type foods or plant-based foods, except for the couple of types of alkaline stones, but those are much more rare. For the majority of patients, it's plant-based diets, cutting down on protein because protein is acidic, right? Making sure you never hold your pee and you have the stream, not the pond effect going on. And just be careful about taking anything extra, Talk to your nephrologist or any other person you're talking to. Make sure that whatever you end up deciding to take, find the data on it. There's data nowadays on everything. It's not like before where we had a shortage of studies coming out. Now we have so many studies and never trust one study. Look for studies done by different people in different places. And if they say the same thing, now you can start to trust them. Are ultrasounds good to detect kidney stones? Yes, absolutely. So the way you end up looking for kidney stones is three different ways. A KUB, right, which is basically an x-ray kidney ureter bladder. And an x-ray will once again pick up the majority of stones, except for ones that are not going to light up. That's very rare. But KUB is what we use. Ultrasound is another one we use. I like ultrasound simply because it's not radiation and I can look for other things. But 
and ultrasound is sound wave so it's not as precise but it will still give you an idea so very small stones can be picked can be missed and then the last one is is a ctkub or a cat scan which of course is far more radiation and generally speaking we'll reserve cat scans on those really rare cases where we're worried that there might be an obstruction going on and we need to look at the whole anatomy because we need our urology colleagues to go in and sort of do a procedure going on. So that's where a CTKUB, which is going and looking basically from the kidneys all the way down to the bladder itself to see where the kidney stones might be. Thank you. Right. Thank you, David. Next, we have Bin. Bin, what's your question and where are you from? Yeah, um, I'm from the Maryland, Baltimore. My question, I have three questions because you talk about the uh, gut bacteria, so, so important. Uh, and so do you, another is fiber, fiber is important, very important. So do you recommend the people to take the, you know, the supplement for this tool? Another is, you said acid, high food, can, uh, is very bad for the candy. So usually what, what kind of food has the high acid? Okay, so if I'm understanding a little bit of the question correctly, so absolutely correct in that gut bacteria is incredibly important for your overall health in terms of, you know, what are the things that can support gut bacteria? So first thing is, is I don't recommend just going for probiotics. And there's a couple of reasons why. Probiotics are great if there's a specific thing that you're treating. For example, we know that some people who might have IBS, certain probiotics, which is in, um irritable bowel syndrome, certain probiotics can actually help as far as that goes. If you're constipation, certain probiotics can help in terms of constipation going on. But what happens with probiotics, there was a very elegant study that was done in cell. And what they found was that a lot of the ways that people were testing if probiotics were working was they were looking at stool samples and they would look at the stool sample and say, okay, you know, so-and-so, uh, let's say they took lactobacillus. And so they found more lactobacillus in the stool. Great. That means the lactobacillus went inside the gut, it bound to the colon, did all of this magical stuff, and you're seeing it in the stool. So that means it's growing, it's thriving, it's all that stuff. But in this particular study, they did colonoscopies. They went in with a camera and what they found was that only about 50% of the folks that were taking probiotics, the probiotics actually did anything meaning the rest of them, they were just pooping it straight out. So they weren't even sticking, they were just going out. Now, the other part of the study that was very important to understand was that when they were sticking to the inside lining going on, they actually made it harder for the rest of the bacteria to have space. So you go from this beautiful, diverse population of bacteria to essentially one or two strains that you're putting in your body at really high doses, and that's starting to crowd out. So the reason that's important is if you're just taking things like probiotics, for example, for no apparent reason, just to take probiotics, you might actually be reducing your gut microbiome diversity. And we know that it can take months for us to fix the microbiome after it's been damaged or antibiotics, et cetera, going on. And how do we fix it? Well, fermented foods obviously are excellent going on as far as that goes. But overall, the variety of fruits and vegetables feeding the bacteria with prebiotics, which is what? Fiber, right? So the more 
fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds that you're doing, the better off you're going to be. So it's not as complicated as people want to be. I know a lot of folks are hoping that a, a supplement will be the answer. That's not to say there's anything wrong with supplements. Probiotics can be absolutely excellent. I prescribe them in my own practice all the time when it's appropriate and there's a specific target that we're going after. So in those cases, yes, they make sense, but it's not something that you just want to blanketly do because you think it'll make a difference. Thank you. Next, we have Martin. Martin, where are you from and where's your question? Um, hi, Dr. Hashimi. Uh, thank you so much for your fine. Uh, presentation. I'm Christian and I'm from Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, I wonder about uh, polycystic kidney disease and um, is it possible to slow down or even stop cyst formation following a whole food plant-based um, diet exclusively? And what uh, and also is there a place for a vegan ketogenic diet in order to slow progression of ADPKD? And again, thank you so much. Yeah, so <laughs> you must have watched my video on YouTube. So there's a really fascinating study, as you know, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, the cysts, they love glucose. So glucose feeds the cyst and that's how they grow. And so because of that, the diet that tends to actually be good is a ketogenic type diet. So when you talk about a ketogenic di type diet, there are ways to make a ketogenic type diet healthier. So this concept, the old type of ketogenic diet, which is that you have to do more of like the hardcore meats and you've got all the saturated fats going on, you can change that. So there's a version of it called a pescatarian ketogenic diet where you're using fish, or you can do more of a plant-based ketogenic diet where your sources of fats are healthier fats. For example, avocados, nuts, olive oil, tofu, etc. going on. So you can do that. But the idea once again, there is, is that when it comes to cysts in an autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, those cysts are living off sugars. So even if you're somebody who's not going to want to do, quote unquote, a low sugar or a, a low carbohydrate type diet lifestyle going on, you still want to understand that the, the typical plant-based diet that we talk about, there are so many junk foods that people are starting to put in there that we, we see so many patients. So I'm a nephrologist and an obesity medicine specialist. So I have two practices that I run. And some of you guys might be aware of the new obesity medications. Those are the GLP-1s, the Vigovis, those Zempics, the Manjaros going on. And it's taken the world by storm. And what's happening is, is all sorts of people are rushing towards weight loss drugs as a way of losing weight, instead of trying to find out what's happening. And what happens is there's so many rebounds that happen. So coming back to your question of autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, absolutely, you need to cut down on the sugar drastically. You definitely want to work with a renal dietitian. This isn't something that's easily done on your own. And the data is, is that you're able to slow it down. Now, we also have medication like Tovapten that basically makes you pee like a storm. So one of the hallmark features of ADPKD is we make you drink so much water. We need to make you pee like three liters of urine a day. So you need three liters of water a day plus some because you're sweating and all sorts of other things. Thank you. All right, next we have Carol. Carol, where are you from and what's your question? 
Yes, hi. Uh, I'm from New Jersey, and th thank you very much for your presentation. It's so excellent. I was wondering if you could um, share with us some of the things that you personally do with your diet, with your plan, your breakfast, lunch, dinner, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so I, I think you'll find my, my plan is extremely boring, and uh, most most, <laughs> most people will probably laugh at it. My, my breakfast is the same thing I have every single day, which is I have a bowl of oatmeal, and I end up putting a tablespoon of peanut butter in it. And the reason I like peanut butter, and it's I, I shop at Costco, so it's the Kirkland brand, it's unsweetened, and all that good stuff. But the reason I do that is because that keeps me full all the way to lunch. We have this uh, really nice, um, I think it's a Mediterranean fast food. Place. It's called Cava, C-A-V-A. It's in California. I'm, I'm out in uh, Los Angeles, California. And basically, I get their bowl, and it's got all sorts of wonderful veggies, and I get their brown rice with it, and it's got sweet potatoes in it. So it's just a really nice, quick way of doing it. So I get my bowl, and that's my lunchtime. I don't have any snacks in the middle. My... If you've seen any of my videos on my YouTube channel, Self Principle, I talk about the fact that the optimal number of meals per day based on science is two to three. And so then for dinner, I keep it really, really simple. It's just some kind of a salad. I eat avocados because for me, I, I have migraines. And what I've found for things like my migraines is, is being able to do a little bit of fasting makes a big difference for me. So I try to have my dinner early, not four hours before I go to bed. So that four hour window, I don't do anything. So essentially the fast starts in the evening, goes all the way till the morning. So this concept of time-restricted eating works wonders as far as that goes. Okay, and Dr. Hasha, do we have time for two more questions? Great, okay, so next we have Barbara. Barbara, where are you from? Where's your question? Yes, hi, doctor. Um... I'm from New Jersey, and um, I was wondering if you do telehealth, because I have two family members, one who has been on dialysis for almost five years and recently had a uh, triple bypass, and also uh, someone who only has one kidney, and they really need a lot of this information because, as you said, you know, a lot of the doctors are not up on the more current information. And so like the one who's needs the kidney thinks that, yeah, I need to have a roast beef sandwich for lunch and that would be good. Um, so if you don't do it, do you know or have any recommendations like it for the Houston area for dietitians or nephrologists? You know, I, I don't know specifically of anybody out in the Houston area. I don't do telehealth there. Since okay. in Southern California, I will tell you, so I have two YouTube channels. The second one is plant-based kidney health. And that one is specific on everything related to kidney health is myself and Michelle Crosmer, who's a renal dietitian. So her and I, every week, we basically take folks questions and we look at the evidence. We create a video around that. So you're welcome to check out that one. Everything there is based on studies. There's nothing that I share. My, my philosophy is very simple. I don't give opinions. I give you the evidence. If the evidence changes, I come back and I tell you this is the new evidence. That's always been my motto. I think the world has no shortage of gurus. I'm not a guru. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That'll be very, very helpful. And in fact, and they're, you know, younger than I am, way younger than I am. And YouTube, that's the way to learn for them. So thank you. Awesome. Next, we have... Ali, Ali, where are you from? What's your question? 
I'm California and I have a question about, I um, have friends that juice, celery juice, like two, two, two whole things of celery every morning. Um, is there anything that's bad about that for your kidneys? No, there's, there's nothing bad about that. It's just, you know, I, the whole concept of juicing is interesting because I, I can tell you back in the day when um, I was going to McDonald's every day because uh, I was absolutely broke and I knew nothing about nutrition and all that stuff. You know, it was funny because I would go and uh, when I wanted to be healthy, if I had some extra cash, I would get myself one of these like juices and be like, oh my God, I'm doing myself so much good. There is nothing that I know about juicing that's actually healthy. So this is an interesting concept where fruits are so amazing that if you have fruit, it's the perfect packaging of fiber, of water, of all of the antioxidants in just the right proportion available to you. So all you have to do is eat it. Once you juice it, you leave all this beautiful prebiotics out of it. No vegetables. It's the same concept. You can, oh, okay. if you juice celery, what happens to all of the fiber? You get the water portion of it, but you're leaving everything else behind. So that's oh. why what we're saying is, is when we start to talk about these concepts of juicing, that juicing is not the same as making smoothies. But even when you talk about making smoothies and for our patients who are diabetics, who may be listening to this um, show today, keep in mind that even when you're talking to diabetics and they're interested in making smoothies and we talk about the idea of making smoothies as healthier, what you're doing with even smoothies where you're still including all the fiber because you're getting the pulp in there, you're breaking all the bonds apart so that the sugar gets released a lot faster. Once again, Nature has had millions of years to perfect a product for us. There's a symbiotic relationship where the hope there is, is, you know, we get the food from all sorts of plants. And as we do that, the idea for the plants is we're carrying the seeds, etc. We're spreading the plants. So it's a symbiotic relationship there. But we have found ways to take that relationship and think that we're doing ourselves a service. So not to say that smoothies are bad, but juicing, definitely, there's no redeeming quality to juicing. There's no harm as far as what you guys are doing, but there's no real good news about that. For smoothies, for our diabetics, we definitely don't recommend it. I can tell you, I do smoothies. When I'm in a rush, I definitely do smoothies. I've always done them. And what I tell people is exactly the same thing is whenever you have the option, your fruits and your vegetables are the best place to start. For people who need to lose weight, for example, how do people bypass or bypass surgery? In other words, how are people able to regain weight after gastric bypass? We take their stomachs, we cut it and make it really, really tiny. You know how? By drinking your calories. All you have to do is literally juice. If you drink your calories, you can bypass all the signal that goes from your mouth to your brain when you chew, from your stomach to your brain when you chew, all this stuff that happens where our bodies have built up these elegant pathways, you can bypass that. Once again, not to discount that, but you have a better option of chewing your food. You know, it's kind of like what our grandparents told us and what our parents told us. Chewing your food will always continue to be literally the best thing you can do. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Hashmi. And I heard you mention that you had a YouTube channel or you have one. Uh, where, where can people find that? 
Yeah, so there's two channels. The first one is youtube.com slash self principle. That's this one right there. And that's the one where I talk about all things broader than just kidneys is nutrition and kidney. And then the other one is uh, youtube.com slash plant based kidney health. And that's the one who is specifically dedicated to just kidney disease. So plant based kidney health is the other one. That's that one right there. So that's the one where we focus all about everything that's related to strictly kidney disease. Great. All right, Dr. Hashmi, I want to thank you for your, your time here. And also, I'm going to mute the audience and see what they have to say. Let's see. Thank you. 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 Thank you.